This is the Ignition Show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to or welcome back to our podcast. My name is Chris Jansen, host of the Ignition Show, where our aim is to create meaningful conversations with switched on people about things that matter. Matter in the pursuit of your potential and igniting the flame within you to live your best and full life. I was sitting in a hotel conference room in Calgary, Alberta, a few years ago, watching a colleague of mine facilitate a section of a training workshop. It's a program that both of us have delivered hundreds of times, but it's always wonderful watching someone to do things differently than you do or say things that you've never thought of before. Almost in passing, he made a comment to the packed audience of senior banking leaders about the number one hidden source of your stressors. I won't say what it was that he said just now. You're going to have to listen to today's episode to find out. At the time, I was half listening, but when he said what he said, I perked up immediately, and what he shared that day has stuck with me for years. It wasn't his original thought, though. He gave full credit to a friend of his in Seattle, who had authored multiple books and given talks in dozens of countries on finding balance, developing greater self-awareness, and understanding your stress. So it was with excitement that I reached out to Jay Eller to have her as our featured guest on the podcast. Jay is the source of that tip that my colleague gave. Jay has a very compelling story that is all too common for achievers. That is, everything is going great until it suddenly isn't. I'll let Jay get into the details of how that changed her life's journey toward a much greater mission and contribution to bettering people's lives. There are lots of great tips in this episode, so be sure to capture anything you think can help improve your approach to finding happiness, managing stress, and everything in between. Enjoy the conversation. On today's show, we're speaking with Jay Ellard. Jay is a mindful awareness author and teacher and has spent the last 20 years writing about, studying, and observing how people communicate and don't communicate about the things that matter most. After years in senior communication roles, crafting content for executives, Jay collapsed from stress-related adrenal fatigue. This life-altering experience propelled her to research human behavior, neuroscience, mindfulness, and organizational relationship systems. She has written seven books and hundreds of articles on human development in the workplace and given talks in more than 50 countries for world-class organizations such as Microsoft and Amazon. She recently completed a year of study at UCLA's Mindful Awareness Research Center and is currently working on her eighth book about connection due out in 2020. Jay, welcome to the Ignition Show. Thank you, Chris. It's great to finally connect with you. Yes. And it sounds like you're, uh, you're, you've been very, very busy these last handful of years spreading the, spreading the word and spreading awareness about, about mindful awareness. And it sounds like it all started from collapsing from adrenal fatigue. How did that experience become life-altering for you? Uh, well, in a lot of ways, I like to refer to that night as a hot summer night because it actually was a hot summer night um, when I when I collapsed. And it was in Orlando, Florida. I was uh, an employee um, working at Microsoft managing media needs for the company's top executives at this giant internal sales event. And next thing you know, I hit the floor. There's paramedics. Um they tell me that they think I'm experiencing something called adrenal fatigue, which didn't even register to me. I just was on the floor, semi-unconscious. I, I go to see my doctor a few days later after I'd flown back to um, Redmond, which was where I was living in Washington, at which point my doctor told me um, that stress was basically killing me and his medical advice to me was to quit my job. Wow. And I thought that what an insane conversation to be having. Like, this is your medical advice to quit my job. And I knew enough at the time that the job wasn't necessarily the problem that I was, but I didn't know what to do with all that information. And so I took a couple of weeks off, right, to heal my body and started really thinking about how in the world did I get here? Uh, I'm a smart woman. I have a master's degree. You know, the execs trust me to make them look good on these big screens. Like, how did I get there? And that's when I realized I got there for a few reasons. One, because it, it never occurred to me um, there was a different choice hmm. because I was living the life that I thought I should be living because it was what was being role modeled around me and what was being talked about around me. And it didn't occur to me that there was a presence of a different possibility for um, managing myself, managing my stress and setting boundaries and setting limits. And so I had this big aha moment, but I still didn't know how to actually change or shift or do anything about it. 
which is what sent me on this like deep immersive path, reading about the physiology of the body and the science of stress. And I'd been a crisis meditator um, up until that point, you know, just only, only when necessary. And I got deeper in my mindfulness practice and all that started coming together. And over time, uh, it turned into what became my first book and the workshop I offered. So it was a life altering moment that took about a year to unfold. Wow. wow. And it sounds like, you know, as I often say, sometimes the greatest, um, greatest growth comes out of painful moments. And it sounds Absolutely. like that was a painful experience, but it certainly has put you on a great path. Yeah, it was a painful experience, incredibly hum humbling and incredibly empowering. And, you know, out of that experience came a series of many, many small moments in which my life continued to shift and change. Um, the, the boundaries I started making, the choices I started making and the awareness, right? That's my, my core teaching is, is awareness as a skill and just even learning what awareness was, which meant I had to learn how to see myself and the choices I was making and the impact those choices were having on me. Like, is this going to support me? Is this going to sabotage me? Right. And that wasn't a, a skill or even thought process that I even knew existed. And so it was like one tiny aha at a time. <laughs> well, and let's dive into this because, you know, it's been said that you, you can't change what you don't notice and all change starts with awareness. Yet at the same time, awareness can often seem to some people passive or too simple or maybe not quote unquote hard enough, uh, hard knocks enough for results oriented people, but you talk about it as a skill. What do you, what do you mean by that? Yeah. Um, it's really important to me that people see awareness as a skill because I deeply believe it is, it is a skill. So awareness can be a really passive thing when you think of it just in terms of like, Oh, I have awareness around the weather today. But when we really look at awareness in relationship to our behavior, that's when it starts to become a skill. And it's really, you know, Newton's law of motion. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Your behavior has an impact, whether you, it's intentional or not. Every action, every choice you make has an impact. It might be on yourself, on your body, or it might be on the other people around you. But there is an impact. And when we can develop the skill to start seeing the relationship between our behavior and our choices to the impact it's having on our desired outcomes. And this is where it works for the, our type A, you know, people who are really highly goal motivated, which is not a bad thing. It's a thing to be aware of. If I'm going to make a choice, this is how it's going to support this choice or sabotage this choice for this goal, this outcome, this, this business objective. Mm. And so it brings intentionality back. And it's an incredibly difficult, deceptive skill once you really realize the core of my behavior has an impact. And your choices every day are limitless. So when you can come back to your center and say, if I choose to do this, these are the potential outcomes. And I'm aware of that. And I'm willing to accept those potential outcomes or know, know that, if that makes sense. So it's a skill. It's a discipline. It's a highly disciplined skill. And when you, uh, I, it's interesting, when you reflect back on that hot summer, hot summer night, yeah. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that it didn't occur to you that you had a choice. When you look back on that now, what, just bring this, uh, using that as a real life example to support your yeah. idea of this being a skill and a discipline, what would you look back and say, well, um, what were the choices you didn't notice that you could make? Oh gosh, they're endless. How much time do we have? <laughs> so the where it what I realized was in that moment in my doctor's office, that was the first time I'd had a conversation about work-life balance or stress management in my life. Mm. So it wasn't a conversation I was having at the dinner table growing up. I'm a fourth generation entrepreneur, so we weren't talking about those things. It wasn't a conversation I had in school, in under, undergrad or graduate school or high school. It wasn't a conversation I'd had in any workplaces, and it wasn't a conversation I was having in social circles. So I didn't even know it was possible to have a conversation about how are you managing your stress, or what does stress look like in your body, or what does balance mean to you, and how do you know when you have it? Those questions were even in my reality. So I would go through, and especially in relationship to body and stress, I had many, many warning signs before I collapsed. You don't just wake up and collapse. I had walking pneumonia twice. I would get severe, severe muscle spasms. Um, I would have sleepless nights. So there were tons of warning signs, but I didn't have the skill of the awareness to say, 
oh, I'm aware I haven't been sleeping well this week. What's happening in my life that might be correlated to that? And what's a conversation that I'm not having that might be contributing to that level of stress? And so now I have the skill to see the awareness between the impact of what's happening in my body and my mind and what's happening in my reality. So, oh, I see this is happening. That's a sign to stop and pause. So how did you develop the skill? Using you and using you as our lab rat here for a moment. How did you personally develop the skill of awareness? Yeah, one slow, cho- <laughs> one slow <laughs> choice at a time. <laughs> and that's what I, I think is such the important thing to know about the skill of awareness is there are layers to learning the skill of awareness. First, there's kind of like new awareness, which is just the reality of like, I have a choice. I get to make a choice. And if I make a choice to binge watch Netflix and stay up late, the impact is I'm going to be tired tomorrow for example. And so I'm going to make that choice. I might still wake up late. I still, I might still like, sorry, stay up late and watch those shows, but at least I'm conscious of I'm making this choice and this is what's going to happen. So that's kind of, that's new awareness. And then there's what I call, um, uh, natural awareness. And that's the ability to start seeing the choices before you make them and having some anticipation of like, you know, maybe tonight I'm not going to binge watch that show because I have X, Y, Z to do tomorrow and I want to sleep a little bit better. And so it's still a conscious effort. And then over time, the skill of awareness becomes pretty fluid and natural. And it just becomes part of your decision-making repertoire. And you're able to not have to have so much um, concentration and focus on each choice you make, or it just becomes natural where awareness has become a lifestyle. You know, you still might, you know, stay up and binge watch Netflix sometimes, but you're not surprised by the impact of that. You're like, Oh, I'm choosing that. Um, and so, you know, one small choice at a time was how, how I did it. So what was how I was taking care of my body? I started there because my body was in complete distress. And so it started with, okay, let's look at my caffeine intake. For example, let's look at the type of food I'm eating. Let's look at my exercise and my moving. And so I started with each choice around my body. And as simple as it is, am I drinking enough water? Like I wasn't even drinking enough water. And so I started one small choice at a time and grew from there to looking at how I was spending my time, where I was spending my time. Was it on things that I value? Yes or no. Was I saying yes to hanging out with people that I didn't particularly feel connected with or um, enlivened by and making choices to build new community and, and, you know, so on and so forth. So there were a series of small, small choices. And is that for you, did that really play out as um, sitting down with notepad and paper or these more passive thoughts as you're in the shower or driving to work? Or did you have any, any particular tools that you found really helpful or that you recommend to other people? Well, <laughs> tools is a great question. So I didn't really know a lot of the tools when I began. So I began to develop my own tools Mm. and those tools were some contemplation, um, activities by really learning to take an inventory of what was important to me. What were my values and was looking at my behavior as how I'm acting each day, helping me live those values. And some of the other tools that as I started practicing just this awareness, almost like looking at my life, like I was a private detective, like, oh, that's interesting. You're going to make that choice, huh? (laughs) (laughs) So kind of like a guilt-free, judgment-free, you know, awareness of like looking at myself like a third party, um, if that makes sense. And being like, oh, look at you, you know, you're on your phone constantly while you're hanging out with your friends. Hmm. If you're wanting deeper connection in your relationship, is that helping you? Hmm. You yes. know, those types of things. And then, um, I did find more um, tools within my study of mindfulness and awareness. And there, you know, everyone from, you know, Pema Chodron to Deepak Chopra to, um, you know, Wayne Dyer, a lot of great, you know, spiritual teachers who either come from secular or non-secular approaches to, living mindfulness and awareness principles. And I began to find different tools and kind of became a seeker of, of information. 
even uh, Brene Brown, a great example of a, of a secular teacher, um, Brene Brown and Elizabeth, Gil Elizabeth Gilbert, when it comes to creativity, yes. people who have great tools that might not be correlated to uh, a deeper doctrine, so to yes. speak. Yes. So you've been traveling the world over the last decade or so, uh, uh, talking to people about this, real people on the front lines in their life, in business. To what extent would you say that the importance of awareness or to what extent has the importance of awareness changed in our modern world of increasing busyness and pressure and pace of life and business? Oh, well, that's such a fantastic question. And what I love about this question is saying that it doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter what your gender. It doesn't matter what your economic status is. It doesn't matter what type of job you have or what level of job you have. Having the ability to be aware of the impact of your behavior going to be able to create a shift in your life. And it might take sometimes years before that awareness begins to land. And sometimes it's an immediate aha moment. Mm -hmm. And so I could be having a conversation in Russia or India or Japan or Germany. And the openness to seeing behavior is the same. Whether people take action to do anything with it or not, that's a different <laughs> conversation. But there's a general openness to wanting to shift the way, especially in the business world, that business is happening. And it's not that things are fundamentally broken. They're just not supportive all the time of um, healthy relationships, you know, relational mindfulness, internal connection and therefore can become pretty toxic in terms of disrupting trust and eroding productivity yes. and impacting how teams and work get done. So there's a genuine willingness to listen and say, okay, how can we do this better? There's a desire that is shared by every team that I've worked with where we want this to feel a little bit better. Yes. Yeah. There's no doubt in my, my work around the world as well, that there's no doubt that the unifying theme that connects businesses around the world and cultures, but most of the work has been in businesses, is the um, ex sometimes excessive, but increasingly the rise of demands, the, the, the expectations, the pressure, the pace of work that we're dealing with, the volume of things, the, the amount of change, etc. And that increasing of demands often does disconnect us from ourselves, from what is important, from even as fundamental as our daily priorities. Uh, let alone our daily, you know, our daily, va our life values. And um, yeah. I often, you know, there's a lot of talk in our cultures of, of at attention deficit disorder, ADD. I believe a bigger problem is IDD, intention deficit disorder, that people aren't <laughs> acting with enough intention to be more yeah. in congruence or in alignment to what is important to them. And so, yeah. Um, so yeah, I do. I also believe that the, the awareness, the, the importance of awareness has, the importance hasn't changed. Perhaps the critical nature of being aware has changed because there's so many more distractions and things pulling us away from what is really important to us. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the my keynote, my uh, my foundational workshop in the first book I wrote, it's actually called "Stop and Think: <laughs> Creating New Awareness." Yeah. And the, the 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 content is designed to really help people stop and think and see behavior and see the impact of that behavior, and also bring teams together. I, I, I work with intact teams a lot or entire organizations where there's a, a conversation that happens where people realize, wow, you're in this too. You're in this too. You're feeling the same thing. And when we get so caught up in the busyness and, and the, the outcomes and the numbers, we lose sight of the humanity in the room. And we realize that, you know, this colleague we're working with is having maybe struggles with his or her marriage or this person's dealing with aging parents or this person has teenagers at their house or someone has a health issue. And we, we sometimes don't have the space for that humanness to occur. And so we're like, that person's just acting like a jerk. Mm. But when we stop and slow down, we're like, wow, that person's not acting like a jerk because they're a jerk. That person's spouse is sick, yes. for example. And so when we, when we stop and pause a little bit, it allows this humanity to come in and, and allows us to assume more positive intent from our colleagues, coworkers, and, and clients that, hey, we're all in this together. Let's take a breath. It's going to be fine and move on together. 
When you, uh, you've dove in deep, obviously, into the understanding of our minds and the power of awareness, when you engage with people in this work, especially mm -hmm. leaders in business, what comes up that surprises you when you're having these conversations with people? Oh, wow. One of the things that comes to mind specifically with leaders is there's a lot of grief I've noticed, and I know this might sound funny, so hang with me here. Most leaders I've worked with genuinely love being a manager. They genuinely love working with people, mentoring people, and empowering people. And there's this underlying level of grief I've seen that comes from a feeling of maybe letting people down or, or not being as present as a mentor and developer of people as they are capable of being or they want to be because they're being pulled in so many directions too. And so they feel maybe the, the struggles and the um, stress of their team but they don't know how to really address it or how to be fully available to it because of the pressures that they're facing and dealing with too. That's interesting that you re you uh, refer to it as grief. That sounds, you know, in many ways, great grief sounds very heavy perhaps, but, it, but it's probably an accurate word. Yeah, I know. That's why it sounds weird, but there's, it's a level of maybe sadness is a, is a lighter word yeah. to say, but there's just like, just like they really truly care about their people. Um, at least the leaders I work with truly care and some of them just don't know what to do. And in this and, work, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say in this work that you do with large corporations, what do you see as common blind spots with leaders and what are the, what are the consequences of those blind spots? So I don't know if I would call it necessarily a, a, a blind spot, but, a I don't know what I would call it. So, Sometimes leaders just don't want to know what's happening again, because they don't know what to really do with it. So they avoid having the conversations all together, especially when it comes to topics like, like balance and stress management and kind of this work workload and you know, resource issue. If the managers don't know too much about it, then that's their way of kind of staying safe and avoiding having to have the real conversation about the impacts it's truly having on kind of the, the human the humans who are doing the work. Yes. Um, and so it's a, it's a self-preserving blind spot, I think, you know, so if they know, then they have to do something about it, but if they don't know, then they don't have to really address it. Mm. And so I think that's one. And then the other one that comes to mind is, um, the idea of the shadow of the leader. I think sometimes leaders aren't really aware of how their behavior perpetuates some of the challenge in the organization. They're like, oh, my team is totally not present, but I am fully present. I'm like, oh, really? Are you <laughs> fully present? You know, um, it's, it's, one, it's a silly example, but it's a really powerful example. They're like, oh, I tell my team not to be on their devices during meetings, but I can be because they know, you know, so it's like a parent saying like, do as I say, not as I do. And so I think that's another blind spot for leaders is it's hard to take a look at your own behavior and it's hard to take accountability to say, hmm, Maybe I should put down my device when I'm giving a review or talking to my team. <laughs> yes, yes. It's remarkable how a lot of the, the, those behaviors show up and really, you know, um, have non-extraordinary um, non moments in a day-to-day -day environment. Like you say, you know, with the laptop screen open and someone's across the table talking to you and you're still typing away and you're telling them you're listening, but then that never works out. So in these non-extraordinary moments is where a lot of those disconnects happen from your own awareness, from the blind spots, whatever it may be. And that's right. When I'm speaking often, I say to people, I'm like, I want to help you figure out how this looks for you Tuesday at two o'clock in the afternoon. This isn't an esoteric exercise. This is like, what does this look like on Wednesday? <laughs> and that means in that moment, in that meeting, I'm on my device right now. I have a choice. I can look up at that person, meet them in the eyes and have a conversation or I can keep typing. And to me, success doesn't matter what you choose. It matters that you noticed. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And if someone, someone listening to this, let's say they're listening to this right now and they're saying to themselves, Hey, I, I get this awareness thing. I'm, I'm very self-aware. I got this. I'm the most self-aware person I know. Is that a telltale sign? They also have blind spots. 
danger, danger, <laughs> danger. Yes. <laughs> um, so here's what I've learned about awareness. I define awareness as the ability to see the world and how you show up in it. Most of us have the first part nailed. We can see the world and how everybody else shows up, up in it. So by default, a lot of us live with awareness because we're used to looking at everyone else's behavior and making a judgment or criticism or critique on other people or the environment. Where And so those are the people who are like, I got this thing, this awareness thing nailed because I can see how everyone else is showing up. The real work is in seeing how you show up in relation to all that. Yeah. And as someone who's been living this work for, you know, almost 20 years in different capacities and 10 years wholeheartedly, I'm still working on it. And the only difference between me and the teams and you know leaders I work with is I might get there a little bit quicker because I've been practicing the skill a little bit longer. It's just like playing golf, right? Your swing gets better and better over time, but you still got to work on it. Yeah. Yep. So, and so, and so if someone is saying to themselves, Hey, I got this thing, I'm very self-aware, but maybe that's a little warning sign. If they need to do yep. some reflection, where <laughs> would you suggest they start? Like what would be a simple practical thing that they might do uh, to be more aware and maybe have a greater perspective or appreciation for how they are showing up? Okay. So this is going to sound like a cheeky answer, but it's a real answer. So I like to teach people to start with paying attention to when you're not paying attention. <laughs> so instead of trying to learn to pay attention, just begin to notice throughout your day where you're not paying attention. Just notice it and then come back to try to come back to attention. Like we were just talking about the example in the meeting. Notice that you're no longer paying attention. Come back to attention. You're driving in your car. You no longer are aware of where you're driving. Come back to attention and just begin to notice all the times in the day by creating awareness around where your attention is, where you're not paying attention. You could spend years just practicing this level of awareness, just noticing all the times you've stopped and noticing what's happening around you. Yes. That's the great first step because then it gives you a sense of where you are and how much work you might need to do to come back to building the skill of awareness. Um, so that's the start. That's the starting place I, I tell most people begin here. You know, one factor that inhibits our awareness when, especially when looking at it through a lens of uh, a physiological or neurological lens, of course, is stress. Mm -hmm. What do people need to understand about what happens to them when stressed? What's really going on when we're stressed? So physiologically, when your body's experiencing a stress reaction, it's trying to save you from danger. So it's good. Stress is good. We want the ability to experience stress. You know, if you're being chased by a wild animal, you're in a car accident, your house is on fire, all these things are great. Your body's going to start a chain reaction. Your heart's going to start beating faster. You're going to have certain hormones pumping in your body, and that's all going to create this, this reaction. And so we want the ability to have that when our life is in danger. When our life isn't in danger, <laughs> we want to be able to notice these signs and come back into kind of the cognitive reality to see. I'm sorry, I kind of lost track of thought. I wanted to keep, let me keep going what's happening in the body before I go back into the cognitive reality. So what's where all of the stress is coming from is it's coming from your amygdala, your survival brain. And so you're actually losing access to your frontal brain, which is the, the place where all of your business skills, your ideation, your executive function, your motor function all come from the front of your brain, which you don't have access to when your body's experiencing a stress response. So your breathing is even going to shift. You're going to be working out of your autonomic nervous system instead of your parasympathetic nervous system, which is the calming force of your body. And so in order to begin to shift states out of a stress state into a calm state, the number one thing we need to think about is coming back into our breath. We come back into our breath, we start calming our nervous system down, then we're going to begin to have full access again to our, our brain and therefore maybe clearer thinking that's not survival-based thinking. Yes. And what I love about what you said a few moments ago was one, <clears throat> one real example where this survival or safety or, or self-preservation comes into play. What you mentioned 
was that uh, one of the blind spots maybe leaders often fall into is they don't want to face something. Mm-hmm. And when they do, if they have to face something that might be uncomfortable, they'll want to avoid the conversation. Mm-hmm. And w- when I was first introduced to your work, I understand that one of the conclusions that you have come to or realizations was that the the greatest cause of stress is that is the conversations that aren't being had, which I find fast, fascinating. How did you come to that conclusion? Well, a lot of conversations with a lot of people all around the world and and also having to let go of my own idea of what I thought stress was, because it's so much easier sometimes to think stress is something that happens to us and not something that we have control over um, reducing or minimizing. So there's natural stress in the world. Again, those are things like car accidents and, and fires and like, you know, things that we don't want to have happen to people. And then there's the modern day stretch, which is stress, which is about 80 to 90% of the stress that we all experience. And whenever I would experience a stressful situation, or I'd hear people discussing a stressful situation, I noticed a pattern. And those patterns were, there was a conversation, there was something that wasn't being said, that was getting in the way of that person's expression of their natural feelings, or their desires, or their wants, or expectations, or boundaries. And what lies underneath that? What are, what are we so afraid of? Hmm. Well, this is where it gets really, really soft and sweet. We all want to be loved, appreciated, recognized, and seen. Yeah. We all want to be enough. And life is sometimes scary and feeling vulnerable can be, you know, uh, a risk for some, for, for many. And so we wear these different masks during their day. And some of these masks help us be amazing at our jobs and be amazing leaders and amazing marketers, amazing communicators, whatever it is that we're choosing to do professionally. And some of these masks can get in our, get in our way as well. And so some of these conversations are rather innocent that we're not having. And some of them are uh, pretty deep and have been going on for years. And this is where the skill of awareness turns a little bit more internal in terms of understanding why we're not saying something. Um, I might be avoiding having a conversation with a business partner because if they say no to what I have to say, then that means the project's not going to move forward, for example. So instead of knowing the project's not going to move forward, I might avoid having a conversation for a couple months because I don't really want to know the outcome or deal with the outcome. Mm. Um, for example, and then sometimes when the emotional stakes are high, um, like, you know, to take into a personal example, if you're going to ask someone out on a date, (laughs) (laughs) you know, you might be having this great friendship with someone, but your feelings are a little deeper and it might be causing you stress at the idea of thinking of asking them out and them saying no. And so you have this like energetic force building up in your body. That's actually at a physiological level presenting itself in a negative way to your body over time just to avoid the rejection that you think you may get. Or you might get the risk and the, the reward and they say yes. And that's a whole other series of events in your body. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Now, you mentioned um, in your book, uh, Success with Stress, mm-hmm. you mentioned, which I think is a, a great point of awareness, and I believe it's a one big empowering idea, is that some emotions are masking emotions. You mentioned we wear masks in different roles of our lives or different moments, but what do you mean by masking emotion and, and what should we do with that awareness? Yeah, so humans, we're, we're funny when it comes to emotion. There is, um, I think it was almost, I wish I could remember the exact number. There's over a thousand different emotional feeling qualities that humans can feel. That said, most humans live within the spectrum of 10 emotions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) And again, I think this is because we're not taught the depth of experience of all these different emotions and the nuances between anger versus disappointment, for example. And so sometimes we use these masking emotions. Anger and fear are kind of the biggest ones. Anger is the biggest one because our, our response is to get anger. We get angry. We reject something. Um, we push something away from us when sometimes anger is a direct response to, to sadness or loss. And it's harder to go to sadness or loss or disappointment than it is to go to anger. Yeah. Anger, I think is a great example of a, uh, 
might refer to as a masking emotion or a secondary emotion that there's usually, mm -hmm. there's always something that lies beneath that. Like mm -hmm. what, what's making the person angry beyond the circumstance, but why do they go to anger? And when people can really recognize that there's, there's something else that might be underneath that, whether it's hurt or fear or uh, whatever the case may be, they get, I, I think it can really help people be a bit more real, a bit more self-aware as to what's really going on to then lead to perhaps a more effective conversation with themselves or to the other, other person that's involved. Yeah. And this is where, again, the skill of awareness turned internally in terms of noticing, being aware of the spectrum of emotions you have. Am I, am I happy? Am I content? Am I joyful? Am I um, excited? Those are all very different emotional qualities, but a lot of us will just say, oh, I'm happy. Yes. Yes. Okay. What's or really or perhaps even worse, they'll just say, I'm good. I'm yeah, fine, good, right? good, fine, you know, okay, well, what's really, what's going on there? And the curious, again, coming back to this, like, guilt-free, judgment-free curiosity of yourself, where if you have, you have a, in mindful awareness, we call it emotional reactivity. And, you know, so that's where you have, like, a, an anger response that's really quick and maybe disproportionate to what's happening, what's, what's occurred. And the willingness to just stay with that curiosity and say, wow, that was a really interesting choice for me to respond that way. Why did I do that? Mm. Is it actually in relation to that or is it in relation to something else? And just noticing. And, and it's, there's a lot of layers, you know, like an onion, to use the analogy of an onion. There's a lot of layers with these emotional qualities and these masks we wear. And just finding comfort with the curiosity to, to know, well, why did I respond that way? Yeah. What's going on there? I think that's a great that's a great question to to reflect on whether it's just in passing or in a, in a journal or notebook or something it's just why did I respond that way yeah and so you asked me earlier you know awareness can seem like a really passive thing and now we're getting into the guts of it a little bit it's actually not that passive at all it's it's really hard and there's a lot of steps that are involved with the willingness to live with awareness in your life. There's, there's emotional awareness, there's physical awareness, there's relational awareness, there's contextual awareness, there's intellectual awareness. And so just beginning to be comfortable with why do I do what I do and what is the impact of what I do? And is that the impact I'm hoping to create? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm a, certainly a believer that uh, it can be super helpful to realize that behind every emotion and action there's a positive intent. Like we're trying to act in a way that, or reacting in a way that is trying to meet a need of ours on some level, often a deep fundamental level. Back to your point about we all want to be loved and acknowledged and respected and appreciated in some way. Um, and when we're stressed, we often behave in ways that, on the surface, do not feel that they're very, they're very. There's a positive intent there. You know, whether it's passive aggressive or guilting or shaming people or outright being angry or aggressive. Yeah. When we find we. You know, again, get, let's getting really practical. If you were to advise or, or coach someone or train someone, if they find themselves, maybe they have a pattern of maybe they go to anger and aggression. Mm -hmm. um, he's using that as an example or guilt or shaming. Um, how do you help them under, recognize, what would you guide them to do or to reflect on to understand what, what's the intention behind those behaviors? What are they trying to get to and how can they better meet those needs? Yeah, you know, um, I think let's talk about control instead of the guilt and the shaming and the judging, because those are all wonderful, good too. But control is a little bit more um, tangible to talk about in terms of um, managing stress and helping to manage these emotions. Like uh, for a lot of the working world, controlling behaviors tend to be a big issue. And so when we can take an example to see where we're trying to control a situation. We can find some compassion for ourselves in that and realize most times when we're controlling, it's because of a fear we have. Um, we feel out of control. We're uncertain. We feel a little vulnerable. And so when our behaviors come out as controlling, which could be guilting or shaming or trying to manipulate people, the intention is normally coming from a really soft, gentle place inside of uncertainty and fear, yes. fear of that uncertainty. And so when we can come back to the, 
when I work with people, I, I, I help them understand kind of this, this space of self-forgiveness or, or non-judgment with self. When we see some of these behaviors that we, we sometimes want to disown that we have, you know, I still control people and you know, I still see those behaviors in me and I go, oh, wait a minute, look what's happening right now. The uncertainty I'm feeling right now is making me want to have a tighter deadline on this project because I feel uncertain about it. So if I try to control the deadline, then at least there's something that feels tangible to me. Mm. And so then I can go back inside myself and be like, okay, you're feeling controlling right now because you're feeling uncertain. That's okay. Chill out. It's going to be fine. Trust the process. Trust the people you're working with. Mm. And so when we can lighten up on ourselves, most times the behaviors themselves begin to release a little bit. That's very interesting. And I'm also a believer that I'm also a big believer in the, the words we use matter. You know, the, yep. the, the words that come out of our mouth or sometimes run in our mind have a direct impact on our feelings and um, how we act from that. And I, I, I often find that the word stress in and of itself is a massively overused word in our culture. You know, people are, are attached experiences, they attach experiences and situations as stressful. You know, mm -hmm. this thing is full of stress. So I have a, uh, uh, elementary uh, elementary teacher, a friend of mine, who was telling a story recently. There's an eight-year-old in her class who, in a very dramatic, a young girl, very dramatic way, kind of said, oh, my life is so stressful. <laughs> and her, the teacher's eyes kind of popped out of her head uh, and as a response to some you know assignment or something they had to do. And it's like, wow, where does that eight-year-old girl get mm -hmm. that language from? Most likely mom or dad. Mm -hmm. um, to what extent do you think that we bring stress on ourselves? Oh, huge amount of stress we bring on ourselves. Oh my gosh. And I'm just like sitting here nodding as you're talking, Chris, because we, stress is so overused. It is so overused. And, and what we're really talking about is something is unpleasant versus something is pleasant. Most of the times when we're calling something a stressful situation, it's, it's, again, it's like the emotional link labeling emotions that we're confused with it. It's an unpleasant experience that we hope would end, but it's not a truly stressful experience. And so when we can begin to change our relationship with what we're considering a stressful event, that's when we're going to begin to change the languaging and change how, um, how like younger people and how overuse the phrases. And, and I, I got so passionate about what you're saying. I forgot your question. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the question was simply how, to, to what extent do we bring stress on ourselves? And it sounds like using a lot. Oh, uh, yeah. So how do we start to reframe our experiences? How do we start to reframe, you know, again, I, I know many people who um, have a very consistent language pattern of saying, Oh, that's a stressful meeting. That day was stressful. That relationship is stressful. That phone call was stressful. Going grocery shopping is stressful. And if they really stop and challenge them, they're totally bringing on themselves. So how do we start to reframe that? Yeah. Where do we begin there? So when it comes to reframing our relationship with the things we consider stressful, when we call something a stressful event, what we're really saying is we don't want to be doing it. And this goes back to looking at how you spend your time and money and how they support or don't support your values. And this is like, it's almost like a, a magic trick that you can do with yourself. Write down your values, write down how you spend your time and money, just super honest and see where they match. Where they don't match and you're spending time or money, those are odds are super strong. You're going to be walking around with that language being like, oh, that was such a stressful lunch or that was such a stressful meeting. <laughs> because it's something you don't want to be spending your time and money on. Now, sometimes not, those aren't avoidable because it's a quality of your job. For example, like the operations part of my business is stressful to me, but that's part of running a business. So I know those things are unpleasant and they require a little bit more attention and focus. So I'm not going to stop doing those things, but I can stop grocery shopping Sundays in the middle of the day when it's packed and I can start going Wednesday evenings when it's a little bit more pleasant, for example. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So a lot of that stress is brought on by ourselves, not purposely, but it's unintentionally because we're out of awareness to the alignment of our values and our actions and how we spend you know, time and money on the things we value. I like that. Even that reframing is it's not stressful. It's unpleasant. Yeah. And sometimes we call it unpleasant, especially if that's a, a word I think that people maybe don't use that often. 
um, it makes you really stop to think, what is the situation really? Because mm -hmm. if I'm not going to call it stressful, what can I call it? And it reminds me of, um, you may have come across the, the work of, uh, the great work of the great Jim Rohn, mm -hmm. who often said, replace, simply replacing the word frustrating, the situation is frustrating. Replace the word frustrating with fascinating <laughs> in the same sentence and everything changes. Yeah. Exactly. The meeting I had was so fascinating how that person wouldn't stop talking. Yes. And, and, yeah. and these language, these games we can play with language, they really do begin to fire different areas of your brain. And, and I challenge people with the word busy all the time. Um, people know when they work with me, they're not allowed to say they're busy. <laughs> and like busy doesn't mean anything. Just tell me what it was that you were working on. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, have the full conversation. Again, like you're not having the full conversation. You were busy. What does that mean? Well, I was busy engaged doing X, Y, Z, and that had me doing this and this and this. Let's have a conversation. Um, busy is the same as like angry. It doesn't give you any information or context. And there's not a lot that it, either the receiver or speaker can work with when you hear phrases like that. Yes. And coming back to your point of that, uh, a lot of stressful situations, but we're really saying there's, we don't want to be doing it. Mm -hmm. I think there's also a part of that, um, that is this feeling of not being in control. It's mm -hmm. stressful or I perceive it to be stressful because it's either I'm, I'm either not in control or uh, I also agree with you. So there is, uh, we've disconnected, we've disconnected from our values. Mm -hmm. And I was having this conversation just the other day with, with a client saying that, Sometimes you can do the, you can be doing the exact same thing. You might have to do the exact same thing that is uncomfortable or unpleasant, but realizing that doing that action is actually very directly linked to your goals or your outcomes or, or the task you have as a leader. Uh, and it's no longer just a, a little, you know, frustrating side task. It's actually what your team needs from you as a leader. And you can do the same thing one way. And it could be stressful or unpleasant or annoying or frustrating, or it can be also very fulfilling when you start to change your perspective as to what this task is really all about. And it's very hard to see that elevated perspective when you are quote unquote busy all the mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. And just stuck in it. And that's the skill of awareness right there. Perfectly demonstrated is the ability to shift your thinking or framing to understand the higher calling to what it is that you're doing. And, you know, when I work with um, people all the time, sometimes they don't really see like, um, like li different levels in an organization, for example, um, like someone who might be a support staff person, they're like, well, why do I really need to care about the values or the outcome of what this team's trying to achieve? I don't care what the mission statement is because I don't really matter. No, absolutely. It's the exact opposite. You matter tremendously because of your support. You're enabling and empowering the team to be able to reach this mission and goal. You're just as much a part of it as the business development person and the CEO or the, the marketing team and helping people see how their, their actions directly contribute and correlate to the larger good, whether it's just, you know, a, a, a volunteer project or a, or a, you know, a paid project. Each action contributes to something bigger and when we get stuck and busy it's easy to forget how does me working on this spreadsheet help anyone <laughs> yes. i often when uh, and what also makes me think of is, is often one of the metaphors i like to use with with groups is the metaphor of the the, the dance floor and the balcony and that often you know when you're on the dance floor and the metaphor remember Back in our young, younger years, when we were on the dance floor on a Friday night, the dance floor were all, is where all the work happens. It's where you work up a sweat, you're bumping into people, you're making connections with people, you're getting stuff done. Uh, every once in a while, you need to take a break. And you go grab a drink, and you go up to the second floor of the dance club, and you look down from the balcony on, on, down on top of the dance floor. And you get a very different perspective there, an elevated perspective. And you can start to see how groups are kind of cliquing together. You can also imagine what you looked like on the dance floor when you were down there. And so the metaphor of getting up to the balcony to take a, an elevated perspective, to look down on yourself and how you've been reacting or responding, I think it can be very empowering. And to that, and that, on that note, you know, we've all, especially as we get on in years uh, as adults, we've all um, 
learned or have developed, I said developed is a better word. We've all developed certain response mechanisms to stress, how mm -hmm. we either try to manage that stress or how we tend to respond to stress. Um, or we find workarounds to soothe ourselves when things get stressful. Well, again, what would you, any, any advice you'd have for people who um, maybe need to take a, a view from the balcony on how they are currently responding to whatever their stresses are, how they're responding and what choices might you introduce them to having? Yeah, the number one thing that I, I ask people when I'm, when I'm doing a success with stress workshop or having a conversation about stress is I, as I make people spend three to five minutes answering this question what stresses you out? And if you don't know, look to the conversations you're not having. And that's like the breadcrumb trail right there. Most people don't even know what stresses them out. So they run around with this label throughout most of their day. I'm so stressed. This is stressful. This is stressful. This is stressful. Like we were talking about, and they're not even really clear what it is that stresses them out. So first off, I, the first tool is get clear. What is actually stressing you out? Is this a conversation you're willing to have right now? Yes or no? Is this a conversation um, that you even need to have? Sometimes yes or no. Sometimes it's just a conversation you have to have with yourself. So that's big part. That's one part of it. What is it that's actually stressing you out? And the other part of it is you're going to experience stress in your life. There's just sometimes stressful things like an example of a true, you know, stress is you're working a high number of hours. You're working like 60 hours because a product's launching or something. That's a real thing that's going to happen. Hopefully there'll be an end to working that many hours week over week. And when you're in these situations that are going to require more of you, how are you going to take care of yourself? What do I do to nurture myself when I am feeling stressed? That's the other missing piece. Most people don't proactively know how to self-care. Yeah. I've been in so many rooms around the world where I've had blank faces when I say, how do you take care of yourself when you're facing stress? And they're like, huh? <laughs> other, other than grind it out until it's yeah. done. <laughs> Keep going, grind it out. And so what is your go-to? For some people, it's a, it's a hobby. For some people, it's a physical activity. For some people, it's uh, you know cooking or, or food related. And for some people, it's breathing. And I want to hit that last quote, that last note, um, for all people, it's actually breathing. So going back to the body and the phys physicality of what's happening when we're experiencing stress, as I mentioned before, our, our autonomic ner nervous system gets all jacked up. And what we need to do is we need to calm down our autonomic nervous system and bring our body back into our parasympathetic nervous system, which is where we want to be living, you know, 95% of our day in our parasympathetic. And the only way that we can begin to calm down the stress responses in our body is through breathing. That's like how you change the channel on your body when you're experiencing stress. So even if you don't know what it is that's going to soothe you, like if it's a hot bath or cooking or going for a walk, start with taking 10 breaths. <laughs> so if you have yeah. no answer yet, that's the, that's the one to start with and then begin to explore what is it that's going to help you find a deeper sense of calm and disconnect. It might be watching movies. It might be playing music. There's no right or wrong here. Everybody's different, Yes. but it's knowing what your go-to is. So what is it that's causing your stress? How are you going to nurture or take care of yourself when you feel it? I think those are great questions. I love those. Super simple and super complicated all at the same time. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. And, and and can be super uncomfortable when some when people, especially if there is something that they had a conversation they've been not, not only not having, but actively avoiding for a long period of time, especially when it comes to, you know, the highest, as we talked about, the highest emotional risk is in relationships. Um, that can be very, very uncomfortable, but it also can be incredibly empowering. Exactly. And liberating because sometimes yes. just knowing what the conversation is, is enough. Yeah. You don't always have to have the conversation. In fact, there's a, you know, in Buddhism, you have something called right speech. Like, is it necessary? Is it helpful? Is it kind? Is it, is it timely? Like asking yourself, do I actually need to have this conversation or is it just enough for me to be aware of there's an issue right now that's happening. I'm not quite ready to talk about it yet. And it's okay because now I know this is why this situation is making me feel this way. Yeah. 
you've just given me a flashback to, uh, I think one of the things that people who know me would say I'm a pretty calm guy overall. It's one of my strengths. Sometimes I over, I go over calm uh, <laughs> when the situation doesn't require calm. But, um, you know, I reflect back as a teenager and I don't think this was taught to me. It's just something I naturally started to do that as a teenager, if I found myself at the end of a day or, you know, getting ready for bed or, you know, getting into bed and my mind is going and, you know, I wouldn't call it then stressful, but I can see how that would be what you could call it now. But I would just sit there and ask myself the questions. Why am I feeling this way? And it was like a curiosity. It was like, huh, when did this feeling start today? Was it after dinner? Was it during dinner? And I would just kind of literally go back to my day. And almost every time I can remember when I, I got back to that real, that real uh, ground zero of where that thing happened that I was uncomfortable about. So many times I'd be, I would think, oh, that's all it is. Oh, I can deal with that tomorrow. And re- but what's happened is over hours or maybe days, things have stacked internally. They've stacked. There becomes this uh, amorphous pile of stress. So I love your question of, of, um, of getting clear on what is stressing me out, what conversations am I not having, and how will I take care of myself when that stress happens? Mm-hmm. And just and the willingness to be curious about what it is and, and lighten up, <laughs> not take everything so seriously and the, well, the, the willingness to not judge yourself and be like, oh man, I totally showed up like a complete jerk there. That felt so unpleasant in my body and I apologized and you know, now I just need to forgive myself. The other person's forgiving me and let's just move on. Well, that touches on the, the second element I, I would love to get your perspective on is we've talked a lot in this conversation about the, the what's called high, high stress mm-hmm. from pressure and busyness and deadlines and launching and business and all that kind of stuff. Um, this high action always on kind of stress, stress and pressure. What about mm-hmm. the other side of the coin? What if someone's going through a low period? Maybe they have some serious worries or stresses in their life, or maybe they're even on some level de- feeling depressed because they maybe they aren't where they want to be in their life or with their health or in their career or relationships or relationships are crumbling, cumber- cumbering down. They're mm-hmm. feeling maybe down and lost. It's a different kind of um, pressure or stress they may be feeling that they don't need to calm themselves. They're already in a low place. What, what do you suggest in a situation like that? Yeah, ask for help, period. Mm. One of the things that... Um, I talk often about when I talk about stress is part of your stress toolkit should be the ability needs to be, I don't want to shit on anybody, but I encourage it to be the ability to know when to ask for help. And that could just be asking for help from a colleague on how to lay out a spreadsheet or how to, you know, give a presentation or whatever it is you might be working on that's causing these, you know, feelings of anxiety or, or um, not knowing Or it could be as big as saying, you know, maybe I should talk to a a coach or a therapist or my doctor about something that just doesn't feel right. There are so few unique problems in this world that the odds are very, 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 very strong that someone else in your world has experienced exactly what it is you're going through. And instead of trying to trudge through it on your own and think you can sort it out all by yourself because it's some badge of honor, Get over yourself, ask for some help, delegate if needed, and just have a conversation that's bigger than yourself. Get out of yourself. I think that's the core teaching here is just get out of yourself, get a different perspective, shift the thought in your head by investigating it from other point of views. Right, that's great advice. And it uh, takes you right back to the question, how can I take care of myself in this yeah. period, right? Because you're not gonna, you're not going to. As uh, was it Einstein that said, you can't solve the problem from the same level of thinking that got you there. That's right. And when when we're feeling depressed, because we all have days of days of feeling blue and down and depressed, and that's okay. And this this is something that's a little bit of a hot button to me. Like the this overemphasis on happiness and joy and and living this like perfect, awesome, positive life is is really delusional. Some days and sometimes in your life are sad and uncomfortable and that's okay. And when you're in those times, go to others for different advice and perspective because you can't solve a problem from the level it was created in. And that means you don't have the answers. Someone else is going to help you see a perspective different than yours. 
and that's the healing yeah, exactly yeah yeah changing you can always think there's there's two ways to change anything it's changing your perspective or changing your approach mm-hmm. and one isn't necessarily easier than the other but sometimes uh changing perspective can lead to a much better approach and um so i love your love your point there of asking yeah. for help what if again what if someone's just listening to this and, and thinking isn't asking for help doesn't make me feel weak or doesn't that make me even more vulnerable? What would you say to someone who's maybe has that perspective? <laughs> Get over yourself. <laughs> um, my belief is right. We're, we're in this together. We're humans are a tribal species. We're a community of beings here to help each other, learn from each other, grow from each other, teach each other and, and support each other. And when we start thinking that we have to solve something all on our own, that's when we begin to create more disconnection and more dissatisfaction, more unpleasantness or more stress in our life is the idea that we are in this alone. And so when we can begin to utilize all the connections and relationships in front of us and see how deeply connected we are, where maybe we're not feeling connected, that can begin to really empower and lift people up and shift that perspective from this feeling of weakness or lack to that of connectedness and abundance. So stop taking yourself so seriously and ask for some help. You don't have to figure it all out on your own. And isn't that awesome? So well said, and what a great note, uh, final final punching note on on all that. Before I ask the final question, Mm -hmm. where can people learn more about your work or get in touch with you directly? Oh, yeah, you can um, find me on jellard.com, and that's J-A-E-E-L-L-A-R-D.com. And so I have meditations, and all my books are listed there, as well as resources for the different programs that I teach and offer to individuals and companies around the world. Wonderful. Wonderful. So my final question is reflecting on all that we've discussed today and all the work that you've been doing for people to develop the skill of awareness and better manage their stress. What would you say is one myth they need to see and accept as just a myth? And what is one truth that if they embrace that would make an incredible difference in their life? The myth that I see often is the, maybe it's a belief that the accountability lies on other people that we're looking outside of ourselves for someone else to make a bid for connection or for someone else to create a boundary to help us have better balance or for someone else to do something so that we will have something. And I think the myth is we're that we believe someone else is going to do something that's going to create whatever it is we want inside ourselves. So that's the myth that we're waiting for someone else. And the truth is that the choice is yours. <laughs> the truth is that, the accountability to create any type of outcome, whether it's professional or personal that you desire comes from you making a series of choices and you get to make those choices every day, a hundred times a day. And that's the choice to be more aware in conversation, the choice to be more aware with your body, the choice to be more aware of how your behavior is impacting the outcomes you're trying to reach, whether it's personally or professionally, you get to have that choice to come into awareness and the accountability to look at your behavior before you fall into the myth of looking at someone else's behavior. So well said. And if I was to add one additional complimentary truth to that, that when you do embrace that responsibility and accountability, it's also a truth that we all have the capacity to handle whatever comes at us. We have the capacity to have those conversations that we're not having and um, put ourselves on a different trajectory. Totally. You got this people. Like you totally got this. You know how to do this. Just trust yourself. <laughs> well, Jay, I love your, I love your spirit. I love your enthusiasm. And thank you very much for all your wisdom. I'm a big, big fan of your work. And I encourage people to definitely check out Jay, jayeller.com and learn a lot from, from the work that you've done. Thanks very much for your awesome. time. Thank you so much, Chris. Appreciate it. That was Jay Ellard, expert in mindful awareness. We want to make sure you get the most of the time you've invested listening here. This show is only valuable if you apply what you've learned, and most learning is generated from reflection. So we'd love to hear from you and your reflections about what you learned or found interesting. 
Join the community and go to theignitionshow.com slash connect. That's theignitionshow.com slash connect. And let us know what struck you and what it was that you heard today that you really needed to hear today. You can leave us an audio message or join our Facebook group and participate in the conversation there, where we'd love to hear your comments or follow-up questions. Also, be sure to check out the after show of this episode. That's a shorter follow-up episode where we, that's my wife and business partner, Sarah and I, talk about what we learned from this conversation and how these ideas have shown up in our lives on a more personal level. As always, if you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate the show, or leave a review in iTunes. It helps others find us and helps us get better. We actually read every single review and comment that comes through iTunes, Facebook, and our website, and respond to as many people as we can. And lastly, remember, whatever you dream of, whatever you hope for, and secretly wish you had, you're closer than you think you are, you're meant to have it, and you absolutely deserve it. Until next time, I'm Chris Jansen, and this is The Ignition Show.